Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I am your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Sachin Kumar, the co-founder and CTO of ClearStreet. Prior to starting ClearStreet, Sachin was the co-founder and CTO at Tolo Technologies, an international derivatives high-frequency trading firm with global presence in China, Japan and Australia. Before founding Tolo, Sachin co-founded his first first company QED Trading where he led the development of a high frequency market making platform Sachin has a BS in computer science from Michigan University Join us as we explore the prime brokerage market how Sachin went about building ClearStreet's tech platform his opinion on the rise in retail investing app why he is bullish on embedded finance and much more hope you enjoyed the show Hey Sachin good afternoon how are you I'm doing good. Good afternoon to you. So, where are you calling in from? I am calling in from our headquarters in New York City in Four World Trade Center. Oh, awesome! I was in New York last week. It's always always fun to be in that city. Was the weather good, or did you get caught in uh, some bad weather? I got caught in a bit of a rain. So okay, it wasn't yeah. cold, but it was just <laughs> not the best time to be out and about. Yeah, it's 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 nice and sunny today. Yeah, likewise in Philly, it's it's been a welcome relief. But cool. Let's dive into the questions. Uh, for our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career? Sure. So uh, I'm Sachin Kumar. I'm the CTO and co-founder of ClearStreet. So my career has been spent largely acting as a entrepreneur. My first company I started back in 2008 was an options market making firm. I did that for maybe five to six years and. It's a really great experience in understanding how to build a company from scratch, how to build infrastructure, how to build trading technology, and how to, you know, partake in running a U.S. regulated broker dealer. From there, I moved to doing uh, creating this trading firm uh, that did international trading, so trading between China, Japan, um, and Chicago. Um, I did that for about three years, and sort of the culmination of all of that. experience in building these trading firms was kind of recognizing that the prime broker space which are, which are the kind of the gatekeepers to various different marketplaces is a bit antiquated right so the people that are allowing trading firms and hedge funds to get access to the marketplace that industry has not really been disrupted so in 2018 i met my other co-founders uh, chris pento and uri cohen and we started clearstreet to sort of disrupt the prime brokerage market so you mentioned you have been a serial entrepreneur now did you kind of know that this is what you want to do or is it by accident um i don't know if it's so explicit to me but I, i didn't know that i wanted to create a company that had a lot of impact um i wasn't sure in what industry necessarily um so being in finance is sort of a bit happenstance my first job out of school was at an options market maker and that what a market maker does and sort of the complexity of options trading that kind of latched on to that and trying to match that with sort of building platforms and building good infrastructure uh and building good tech in general is sort of how I organically my passions have been uh, channeled so talking about clearstreet uh, can you talk to us about what the services the company offers sure So Clearstreet is a prime broker. So where is a prime broker? A, a prime broker is kind of a holistic offering that uh, various trading firms, hedge funds, and other sort of financial institutions 
used in order to clear and custody their assets, uh, to do risk management, uh, to do securities finance, and to help with execution, right? So without prime brokers uh, in the ecosystem, it's hard for various institutions to interface with with various markets. And so uh, ClearStreet is kind of rebuilding that entire stack from scratch, from clearing and custody, from risk management to securities finance to execution, all those things. We're kind of rethinking that from first principles and thinking about how we can make that better by rebuilding some of this legacy tech. A lot of these systems are built on cobalt mainframes from, you know, decades and decades ago and and haven't been touched in many, many years. And so we think that if we think about these things from first principles, we can deliver better customer experiences and better customer products. Diving a bit deeper into the prime brokerage industry, how big is this industry? Who are the key players? And is it heavily regulated? So yes, it's very heavily regulated. Um, FINRA and SEC are key regulators. In terms of market sizing, I think Oliver Weinman, if I remember correctly, uh, put it around $40 billion, uh, in terms of market size, or maybe even more. I think it's a little bit hard to estimate the market size here, but it, it's quite substantial. And we've just sort of gotten started. Uh, we're, we've been in production, I think, uh, call it three years. We've been uh, around as the company for four years. And to date, you know, we're doing about 2.5% of the U.S. equities market. So there's a lot of uh, market share for us to, to chew on already. What was the aha moment when you and Chris decided that prime brokerage is, is prime for disruption, basically? And how have yours or how has ClearStreet's offerings evolved since when you started to where you are now? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think for me, um, it's a couple of things. Number one, in terms of the aha moment, number one is it's not it's an industry that requires um, a kind of big barrier to entry. You need a lot of regulatory uh, approvals from from the SEC, from FINRA. You need a significant amount of capital. This is not something that you can raise you know, 500K or a million dollars as a seed round and kind of just create this in your garage. It requires a significant capital investment. But the other thing that kind of struck out to me is more on the cultural side. I think some of these systems and these platforms are traditionally known as what I would call like back office systems. And so they don't have the for lack of a better word, they're not as, as sexy as some of the things that are in the front office. So there's almost like this adverse selection with respect to uh, the talent and the and the prioritization and the intention and the money these systems uh, get. And I wanted to change that. Like that, I think to me, when something is positioned like that, in the same way maybe payments was positioned with like Stripe or PayPal, when it has those characteristics, it's really ripe for, for disruption. And so like clearing and custody is a prime example of something that's not viewed as being all that important in an industry. But in fact, it's really, really important. It's literally the, the, the bare metal of allows capital markets to function. And so those things combined to sort of the, the moment we're like, you know what, we could really disrupt this and it's, it's, it could be really big. When we started, we were originally sort of going after customers that are friends and family, people that we knew within our, our network. These are smaller uh, institutions that needed a home to go to. And then we actually did an acquisition uh, in 2020 of a, of a business in California called Centerpoint Securities. And that was tailoring more towards like active traders. Uh, I would classify these as people that sit somewhere above using interactive brokers, which is a, a publicly traded company. It's a big brokerage platform, uh, but below needing like a, a Goldman Sachs as a prime broker. So 
we went after friends and family kind of first, then we did this acquisition. I've got these active traders. And now this year, we're really pursuing the, the larger institutional space, the, the hedge funds that have 500 million AUM to a billion AUM and trying to fulfill their needs. And so that's kind of the next um, tranche of customers that we're going after. And when you were building the Clear Street platform, right? How did you go about it? How did you go about hiring the right people to help you build this? Yeah, it wasn't easy. I mean, I think I personally did a lot of coding myself. So it was me and two other engineers when we first started back in 2018. And this is a constant problem when you're doing a startup is how do you, how do you build and how do you hire? How do you scale all simultaneously? And for me, you know, what I, what I try to do is I, I try to, I, I zoom in into details and I, I put in the work that I think needs to get done um, and then zoom out and then try to hire. And I, and I cycle in between those two. Now, though, we're, we're almost 90 plus uh, engineers with product and design. We're over 100. And I have great people around me that are facilitating that. But the initial 10 hires is really critical, right? The first 10 people that you hire are really the accelerants and the people that set the culture, the people that set the tone and allow you to have multiple arms that you need in order to do a lot of things simultaneously. And sort of follow on to that, is Clear Street hiring right now? If yes, has what you look for in people evolved since the early days or, or have the core principles kind of stayed the same? Um, yes, we most definitely are hiring. You can check out our, our website, uh, clearstreet.io slash careers. And in terms of what's evolved from when we first started to now, when we first started, I think you are looking for more generalists that can do lots of different things. Maybe they can't go as deep in certain things, but they can definitely have a lot of breadth, right? You can kind of throw them at whatever problem you need uh, to solve and they can solve it. As we've grown and matured as an organization, you tend to look for more specialists, right? Um, That can go really, really deep on a more narrow set of problems and really make, um, solve the problems in in a way that is very delightful to customers or delightful for internal stakeholders and really put that polish that you need as you as you mature as a company. You also raised a Series B round this year. How did you go about the process of selecting the right investors to partner with? Yeah, so you know, capital is obviously one part of the equation when you're looking for an investor, but it's also the other kind of softer things, the skills, experiences, and network. Prism was uh, a great match for us because they brought understanding of the space, right? This is a kind of niche space that many people don't understand. So I think they kind of understand what it means to be a prime broker and, and, and the things that it entails. And more than that, I think they, they had a, a shared vision um, as kind of being investors themselves and experiencing the problems that they've had as being investors and a shared vision of what we're trying to accomplish. So those kind of things... Uh, intersected in just the right way. And, and as we look beyond Series B and Series C and so on, those are the similar characteristics that we're looking for in future investors. And how do you see the vision for the next five years of Clear Street? So as of right now, who are your main competitors and key geographies? And how do you see that evolving or what's your growth trajectory for the next five years? So if the mission for Clear Street at a very high level is any product, any market for anyone. Right. So that's that's what we try to aim for on a day-to-day basis, and it's very incremental. It's a long road to do that. Today, we're doing U.S. equities and U.S. options, but we expand on three different dimensions. We expand on asset class, you know, U.S. equities or U.S. options, or fixed income or futures as examples. The second thing that we expand on uh, are geographies. So today, 
mostly US based, and but we want to go to Canada, we want to go to Europe, we want to go to Asia. Uh, and the third is personas. So um, I mentioned a couple of personas early in the conversation. I mentioned active traders and institutions, but there's multiple different personas that that we can go after. And one of the key insights for us has been kind of a Pareto principle where 80% of the core platform that we build can be uh, reused for different sort of personas and a difference manifests in the last 20%. So the actual product that you interface with. So that last 20%, you can kind of cater towards an institution or you can cater towards wealth management or you could cater towards um, IRA, et cetera. Um, as we looked into the future, that core platform and kind of tuning the last 20% for different types of personas is where we're going to uh, double down our investments and put put more um, uh, emphasis into into the future. And how do you strategize against the recent economic uncertainty? Does that have any bearing on your growth plans or how many customers are you looking to onboard? Um, yeah, I think for, for the most part, brokerage the brokerage industry that we're in with facing off with institutions, any time an institution needs the ability to interact with the market, I mean, trade with the market, that is generally good for our business, right? And so even if the market is up or if the market is down, people will need to trade. And therefore, for us, it's it's usually more neutral to that to that impact. And it's usually a good thing. When there's more volatility for us, it generally is a, is a good thing because people are doing more, there's more financing, there's more transaction activity. It all sort of lends to our, our, our the key levers of our business um, being turned in the, in the right way. So that being said, you know, interest rates in general are, are tailwinds for us. They actually help us like rising interest rates because we have people's balances on, on our, on our, on our books and records. And so interest rates increase in general are good things. So we, we don't try to predict the market. We don't try to anticipate any of this. Uh, we just try to make sure we focus on, uh, making our clients happy, giving them what they need and, and building great products so that we're there when they want uh, to trade and interact with the market. Switching gears for a bit and talking about the fintech ecosystem overall, I would love to get your opinion on your B2C investing or brokerage apps. There has been a recent phenomenal increase in these apps in the market. Do you believe that there's still a lot of growth left or it's kind of concentrated? And would Clear Street ever consider entering this segment? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think some of that, you know, was episodic and perhaps artificial because of the stimulus sort of function that the government took during COVID. Uh, so I, I'm not, it's not clear to me that it's going to continue in a straight line up into the left indefinitely into the future. That being said, um, I think people over time will continue to get more involved in, in the marketplace, will continue to want to invest, will continue to want to grow their wealth. So having exposure to that market is a good thing. And we have some. I mean, Clear Street, as I mentioned, Clear Street uh, did the acquisition of Centerpoint Securities. And so we have exposure to a, a, a B2C uh, demographic. It's not as kind of retail-y as, as kind of the Robin Hoods of the world. Uh, but, there, but there still are individuals who, who kind of actively trade and, and want exposure to the marketplace. And so that's sort of where we've put our investments to make sure we have that exposure and we make sure we are able to cater to that clientele. And within the broader fintech ecosystem, what are some segments that you believe will really drive its growth in the next couple of years? So I'm a big fan of embedded finance. I think some of the things that um, Plaid and Stripe have been able to offer from, from an API perspective is pretty pretty amazing. 
In fact, it's something that I want to pursue at ClearStreet in the in, in the future at some point where we can offer our APIs um, publicly and kind of the platforms we've built internally are offer, offered as, as a platform, as a service that can be embedded in someone's app so that if they need like a clearing and custody functionality, we can provide that. So I think that has a lot of sort of, uh, of growth there. Um, and, it, and it makes the lives of engineers easier, which I'm quite sympathetic to. The other thing I'd mention, I think, is uh, vertical integration. I think there's been quite a bit of uh, a fragmentation in fintech with people carving out the various functionalities of, of what a traditional bank was and you know, creating break products of it. But now I think it perhaps has, in certain areas, gone too far. And I think you might see some uh, roll-ups and aggregation of certain things. Uh, and you, you hear you know, Elon Musk talking about the super app, right? That's, a, that's an example of something of that sort. I think more vertical integration will happen over time. And as a flip side to that, do you believe that there are some segments that you're bearish on or you feel there are segments that are past their prime or heyday? Um, so I think uh, bearish might be too strong of a word, but I, I think neobanks, as an example, um, there's quite a few of them at this point. And I think there you might see some players trying to vertically integrate, trying to create that super app where it's not just banking, um, you add investment, you add wealth management, uh, fractional shares, et cetera. So I think the, the trend towards a super app would happen with some of these neobanks. But do you feel that the incumbents, the big four or five banks in the US are better poised to achieve that rather than some of the neobanks going upwards? I, I, th- I think startups generally uh, can innovate quicker than, than banks. I, th- I think the neobanks, like the Monzos of the world, are in a good spot to actually achieve something like this. Um, but, but you know, banks have great people as well. Um, it's anyone's game, uh, but it's really about who can move uh, the fastest and the quickest. And for the last segment, what I'd like to do is have a, a round of rapid-fire questions to introduce you more as a person to our listeners. Sure. So my first question to you is, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? Uh, poor font selection uh, annoys me quite a bit often, I think irrationally so. A, a bit of a font snob, so presentations and decks that I see don't have the right font. It's a bit, uh, I can get a bit cantankerous over that. So that's a fun fact. You sound like you were a consultant in the previous life. <laughs> Maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> if money was not a constraint, what would you be doing? Uh, I think I would be uh, coding more because I, I, I'm, at my heart, I'm an engineer. I will most definitely be doing something with open API. Uh, Chat GPT is amazing probably doing something in rust uh so I, I think i would be i'd be on a uh you know a beach somewhere coding something up that may or may not be useful for somebody what are some risky career moves that you made and what was the thought process behind them i think much of my career has been quite risky since i had started multiple companies so much by definition it's a bit risky and for me, it's sort of thinking through what was the uh, expected value of a really great outcome. Uh, what's the expected value of like a of a median type of outcome or uh, like a mediocre outcome? And then, what level of fulfillment would I get in each? And what is the probability of success of each? So that's kind of the the rough high level mental model that, I, that I've used. And maybe the last one is regret, right? Like if I didn't do this, would I regret not doing it? Uh, and as an example, my last uh, trading firm that I that I co-founded that was trading in China, Japan, and, and Chicago, I flew to Hong Kong and I lived there for a better part of a year. 
uh, without any real idea if this is going to work. Um, and, and but in uh, part of the decision making there was would I regret uh, not doing this and passing it up in, in, in retrospect? And you can never know that, but uh, for sure. But it's sort of a good test uh, mentally. It's like you know, if I pass this up, am I going to think back to this and be yeah, I should have taken my shot? And so that's been my my kind of mental model for most of the stuff. And when you were thinking about these probabilistic outcomes, right? Was your philosophy more of go all in and sort of burn the boats, or did you have a plan B option B in mind in case your startup or venture didn't work out? No, I think you go all in. You don't try to hedge. The hedging sort of reduces the probability of success. Um, so you have to go all in, and, and, and I always was all in. What is your favorite fintech app on your phone? Oh, good question. Um, it used to be um, Robinhood. Um, I used to use that a lot. But outside of that, I don't know if I've used anything recently that has been uh, amazing for me. So yeah, I think, I think Robinhood was my... Especially when it first came out, I was like, this is, this is going to be big. This is really easy to use. Um, but outside of that, I don't think I have one that uh, I would call out. I know I'm a bit off track here, but recently there's been a lot of debate about whether Robinhood and similar apps are, of course, for good or for bad given the fact that they put so much power in the hands of retail investors who may or may not know how to wield it properly. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's probably both, right? I think it's done a lot to surface capital markets to a large swath of people that may have not been introduced to it or may have been introduced to it later in their lives. Um, so on that side of things, I think it's it's important for people to know what capital markets do, why they're there, why they're important for capital formation. Um, so that from that perspective, I think it's it's done a, a good job. That being said, the flip side, of course, is that it, it can lead to risky behavior and people not knowing exactly what they're doing. But I think you know innovation tends to have that risk, right? Where you're trying to do something and surface something to an audience which has some sort of unintended consequences. If you actively uh, and deliberately kind of address those unintended consequences over time, I think you can try to maximize the good that you're trying to do. So I wouldn't ever sort of sit here and try to try to um, disparage a, a, another sort of uh, company or app. But I think I think they're trying to address those issues, right? And I wish them all the luck in the world too in addressing that. Question is, and I think you are the right person to answer this. You have had multiple startups. Is there a replicable formula that you use each time in terms of how to get the initial customers on board, how to think about which problem to tackle that has helped you achieve success? I think if I can distill it down, it would be, and this might sound kind of trite, but zooming in and zooming out has been extremely important to me. And what I mean by that is sometimes you can remain completely zoomed out where you're, talk, where you're thinking only about strategy and you're only thinking about vision and you're thinking about high level, right? And you, of course, you need to do that. but that level of abstraction has to be grounded in like raw details. And if you don't zoom in into the details, um, your abstractions and your high-level thinking could be very baseless. And so I try to consciously kind of go in and out of that. And, and for me, what, what does it mean to be zoomed in? For me, it's actually looking at code, looking at our actual structure of how we're designing our architecture, our engineering sort of processes and ceremonies. Are they functioning well? Do they work? And then forcing myself to then zoom out and think about, okay, how does all those details, how do they map to the vision and the road mapping? I think what I've seen is sometimes people get stuck in either side of that, right? They, they, they're too much in the details and they can't get out and see the broader picture, or they're just perpetually high level 
and, and can't see um, the, the details. And they'll make sort of stories of why they need to remain on either side, right? It's very common to kind of convince yourself that, yes, I just need to be looking at this code. I can't be distracted. Or I need to think about the business as a whole. I, you know, coding is for someone else. It's not my job. And actually that right there, that phrase, it's not my job, is incredibly dangerous. Like you should never be thinking that anything that, that, that your company needs is not your job because it's all your job. Uh, it just depends on you having the wisdom to know when it's supposed to be your job. Uh, and that's sort of the, the key thing that I've used and I've learned. And how did you sort of check or balance to make sure that, okay, now I have zoomed in enough, I need to take a broader view. Or, okay, this is enough abstract thinking or strategizing, I need to go and go to work. Is it your co-founder, someone in your team, or is it something you do yourself? It's, it's some largely based on intuition, if I'm being honest. I don't have a, like a magic sauce, but um, a healthy dose of, of questioning yourself is often useful, like asking yourself if, should I be focused on something else? Or I spent too much time on this and, and not sort of telling yourself that you're, you're right all the time. Like questioning yourself is really important. I'm highly skeptical as an individual and, I, and I'm probably most skeptical about myself. And so every week to two, every two weeks, I'm asking like, what am I missing? What am I not spending enough time on? And that sort of helps me guide. And of course, bouncing ideas off your co-founder. I talk to my other co-founders a lot. Uh, and, and, and that helps you tune those intuitions and tune whether you're focused on the right things. And I know you're a technical person, but if you had to give one piece of advice or how would you advise a person in business school who wants to enter a fairly technical or wants to be part of a fairly technical venture? How would they go about building those technical jobs that are needed to be successful? So I think you could obviously take the classes and take the courses. Um, but even if you didn't do that, there's so many online resources. I mean, most of the things that I've learned from a technical perspective didn't come from school necessarily, right? Um, I actually learned them outside of school. So there's no shortage of free resources to understand at least enough that you can build the mental models of how this works. And so you can have better intuitions and engage in better interactions with technical people. So even me as a, as a CTO, there's technology out there that I don't know, but I need to know generally what they do so I can engage in thoughtful conversations and potentially use them at ClearStreet, etc. And I'm constantly trying to learn what those things are on a week-to-week basis. So, you know, Hacker News, read Hacker News as a, as a, as a minimal thing you could, you could possibly be doing and, and continuing that sort of curiosity of how this stuff works and engaging in people that are uh, more technical and, and seeking those people out that are more technical is is uh, always a good thing. On that note, Sachin, we'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.